I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we take the confusing passages of Scripture and we will place them in their original context and examine them through the lens of life and death rather than good and evil. And when we do that, we find that they're perhaps not as confusing as we had originally taken them to be. This week we're in Genesis 20. If we're following along in the one-year Parsha cycle, we're in the third week of Parsha Vayera. And this chapter prevents several things that we can look at, and I'm going to touch on many of those. But once again, the story makes an assertion that has developed further in other places of Scripture, and that's what we're going to focus on this week. Another thing that we face in the story is that we read stories that are similar on three different occasions in Genesis. Back in Genesis 12, we read of Sarah being taken from Abraham by the king of Egypt. Then there's this story here in Genesis 20, and then in Genesis 26, Isaac gives up Rebekah in the same place, in the same way. None of these stories are exact repeats. They are variations of persons and places. And the simple fact that this basic story is recorded three times in Scripture should clue us in to something happening in the story that is transcendent and very meaningful. I have an idea of what that is, but there are some other things that we need to cover before we get there. The name of this Parsha Vayera in English is translated as, And He Appeared. And if we look to these chapters, we will find that they all have a central thread that runs through the core of each chapter. We have tugged that thread twice already, and so we will tug at it once again. In chapter 18, we explored the topic of the righteous man who walks upright before God. Abraham, the father of our faith, alone in the wilderness of Canaan, approached by God, and to whom God reveals his plan. A man who made requests of God, and God simply gives. Chapter 19 then tells the story of Lot, the nephew of Abraham. And as we examine this chapter and what occurs, we discover that for all of his faults, Lot was accounted as righteous. Lot also was a man who was approached by God's messengers, and to whom God revealed his plan. And he's a man who made a request of God, and to whom God simply granted. Here in chapter 20, though, we find a new take on righteousness. This time it's not Abraham or even anyone associated with Abraham who's called righteous. In fact, the one who's called out as being righteous and as having integrity in this chapter is a Gentile king. Not just a Gentile, a pagan, a Philistine. There are several differences in this chapter in the relationship between God and this righteous nation. And once again, the difference is very purposeful, and it reveals something vital and meaningful and informative. This chapter also includes for us a contrast in the way that Abraham treats this foreign king, and the assumption that Abraham makes. He tells an untruth. He's willing to pay a cost 
to save his own life. Each of these things adds up, and in the end they cause collateral damage. The story taken as a whole can be rather complicated as it builds on the themes that have come before, and it makes startling contrasts that may seem illogical on the surface. But if we dig deeper, there is a profound truth to be found in this mess. So let's read the Parsha and then dig into just what's going on here. More importantly, why is this narrative in Scripture? Genesis 20 And Avraham set out from there to the lands of the south, and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur, and stayed in Gerar. And Avraham said concerning Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Avimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But Elohim came to Avimelech in a dream by night and said to him, See, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. However, Vimelech had not come near her and said, Adonai, would you kill a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And she, even she herself, said, He is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and in the innocence of my hands I have done this. And Elohim said to him in a dream, Yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, and so I kept you from sinning against me. For this reason, I did not let you touch her. And now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and let him pray for you, and you live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall certainly die, you and all that are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, and called all his servants, and spoke all these words in their hearing, and the men were greatly frightened. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And what have I sinned against you, that you have brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin, and you have done matters to me that should not be done? And Avimelech said to Avraham, What did you have in view, that you have done this matter? And Avraham said, Only because I said to myself, The fear of Elohim is not in this place, and they shall kill me for the sake of my wife. And yet she is truly my sister. She is the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to be when Elohim caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, This is your loving commitment that you should do for me. In every place, wherever we go, say of me, He is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and cattle and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell wherever it is good in your eyes. And to Sarah he said, See, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. See, it is to you a covering of eyes before all who are with you, and before all others, and you are cleared before everyone. And Abraham prayed to Elohim, and Elohim healed Avimelech and his wife, and his female servants, so they bore children. For Hashem had closed up all the wombs of the house of Avimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So last week, we began with a discussion on the history of the Bible and its formation, and specifically the history of the origins of the chapters and verse separations that we find in our current Bible. So, how old is the Bible in its current form? It's around 1,600 years old, as far as the books that are included in the Bible. But that's not the whole story, but it's good enough for today. How long ago were the chapters added to Scripture? Well, the chapters were added to Scripture around... 1228, which makes the chapters around 800 years old. How much is 800 from 1600? Well, it's half. Chapters have only existed for half of the lifetime of our Bible in its current form. So, if the Bible is 1600 years old and chapters are 800 years old, how old are verses? Well, verses were added in around 1509, so the verses are really only about 500 years old. 
How much is 500 from 1600? It's 3.2. It's almost a third of the life of our current Bible that it's had verses. So how long ago did the stories that we are reading now occur? The stories in the Old Testament. The stories that we're reading now are probably around 3,600 to 3,800 years old. The entire Old Testament covers a millennia of history, and the New Testament was written 2,000 years ago. So, a 2,000-year-old book was broken down into chapters and verses between 8 and 500 years ago. The chapters and verses, they are a very new thing in the course of biblical history. And they serve us in many ways because chapters and verses allow us to pick specific places in the Bible without simply quoting them. Before chapters and verses, if a person wanted to make others think about other parts of Scripture, they simply quoted part of it, knowing that it was upon the reader then, or the hearer, to fill in the gaps of what was being quoted. And we find examples of this all throughout Scripture, especially in the New Testament, as the apostles quote from the Old Testament. They are expecting the reader to go back and to look at where that quote came from and to understand the context of what is being spoken in the past and import it into the topic that's being discussed in their writings. In many ways, these separations don't serve us, as I said last week, because we can now take the stories and we can look at them in isolation. And we've, when we look at them in isolation, we can miss some of the overarching things that are going on. In fact, it's been proven that our subconscious mind will create a break in thought between chapters and, to a lesser degree, verse separations. And it takes a very specific mental effort while reading now with chapters and verses to remember the context of previous chapters when we're reading straight through. Last week we saw how chapter breaks didn't serve us in the divisions of chapter 18 and 19 because in our minds we split those last two chapters into two separate stories. But when we examined them side by side, we saw that they were in reality the same story, simply told from different perspectives. This week we're going to see the same thing. The biblical discussion of righteousness did not end with Lot and the destruction of Sodom. The story continues into this chapter and once again we will see many of the same parallels that I drew last week. The story begins with a messenger of God coming into an area. This messenger is not angelic or supernatural, it's simply a righteous man. In fact, two weeks ago we spoke of how human messengers take on the title of prophet rather than angel. And in verse 7 we read that Avimelech is to return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He is someone who is carrying the message of God, but he's human. He's not angelic. The native in the story then takes the messenger into his home and shows hospitality. The taking in that is recorded in this chapter is a variation of the Hebrew word lakach, which means to seize or to take. And then a message of judgment is given by God to a man who is self-described as righteous in this case, but who has his integrity confirmed by God. And then a man of God makes a request that has been granted by God. In this story, though, the one who has integrity and the man of God are two different people. The repeat of these ideas should clue us in that this story is truly a continuation of the previous stories. In chapter 18, we saw the truly righteous chosen individual epitomized by Abraham. In chapter 19, we saw the righteous man 
in the midst of Sodom, epitomized by Lot. In this chapter, we'll see the righteous Gentile, the righteous nation, one out of covenant and yet with integrity and attempting to avoid evil. The interaction in this chapter is one that is rather complicated, so bear with me as we work through this. So first of all, let's set the stage for the story. Sodom, just been destroyed. Fire rained from heaven and laid this wicked city to waste. And the nations around would have heard about this tragedy, obviously. News like that travels very quickly. Chances are that they would know something of the reason for the destruction. If there is truth in this world, it's that news travels fast. Lot was the only one to escape from Sodom. But when he escaped, he escaped to a small town. And small towns are seedbeds for gossip. And in chapter 19, verse 23 through 24, it implies that Lot got to Soar as the judgment was raining down on Sodom. As he entered, judgment came. I bet there were a lot of questions. And chances are that he was not able to hide his involvement, that he had been saved from what had happened by the gods. Now, we aren't specifically told that Lot said anything, but later we find that he's hiding in a cave, he's no longer in Soar. Was it perhaps this pervasive suspicion of Lot as the sole survivor from the locals that caused him to flee further? Social pressure pushed Lot to the place that an angel could not. Also, if Sodom was meant to be the example to the world, God would have made sure that everyone knew why Sodom had been destroyed. In this continuation of the story, Avraham has moved on and has arrived on the doorsteps now of Gerar, the capital of Philistia we'll find out later in the Bible. Avimelech takes Sarah to be a wife, on the assumption that she was unmarried, right? Avraham comes in and says, she's my sister. Well, she's available. God then comes to the king in a dream and lays a charge of sin at Avimelech's feet. And what is Avimelech's initial response? Would you kill a righteous nation too? Uh, sure, yeah, you killed Sodom. They deserved it. They were evil and wicked people, but we haven't done anything to deserve destruction. Are you going to destroy us as well? He then makes an accusation against Avraham. Avraham told me she was his sister, and she agreed that he was her brother. Avimelech had acted properly in regards to Avraham and Sarah. He hadn't sinned. Even if he had, it would have been in ignorance. But God knew Avimelech's heart and his integrity in the matter. And so God had kept Avimelech from taking Sarah in a more carnal manner. God protected Avimelech from going further into sin because he knew Avimelech's heart in the matter. And this is the first thing that we should not miss. Avimelech, a Gentile king acting in integrity. Philistia being a righteous Gentile nation. This is something that can exist according to Scripture. In Romans 2, 14-16, it says, For when nations who do not have the Torah by nature do what is in the Torah, although not having the Torah, they are a Torah to themselves, who show the work of the Torah written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts, accusing or even excusing in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men through Yeshua the Messiah according to my gospel. That's, that is no insignificant thing. 
It's the righteous nation who is doing the right thing without the Torah, who is able to accuse Avraham, a man with the Torah, of acting in an unrighteous manner. Avimelech's conscience had borne witness before God, and his secret motives were honored by God. What is it that Avimelech says to Abraham? What have you done to us? You have caused me to sin against you. You have caused my kingdom to fall into a great sin. You have done things to me that should not be done. What is it that is not to be done? Well, it's sin. Giving his wife to another man. That is something that would bring shame not just on Abraham, but also on Avimelech. Avimelech is accusing Avraham of sinning against him and against his nation. But what God says next is a bit confusing. What is it that God says? God says, return the woman. Okay, easy enough. Avraham's a prophet. No problem there. Let him pray for you, and you will live. Wait a minute. What? Avimelech's future depends on Avraham being willing to forgive him? Not just to forgive him, but to seek his good? But it was Avraham's unrighteous act that brought all of this about in the first place. Avraham's not perfect, and we've seen this throughout Scripture. I haven't really pointed it out, but there are times throughout Scripture where Avraham, while doing what God says, he doesn't quite do it the way that God says it. For example, the very first command that Abraham is giving is leave your country and leave your family and go to the place that I show you. Who is it that tags along? Abraham's nephew, Lot. He takes family with him. He didn't keep the letter, and bringing Lot along causes all sorts of problems for the next few decades. Abraham was promised, you will have an heir. So what do they do? They act unjustly with Hagar. He takes her into his bed and produces an heir in that way because they got tired of waiting on God. They didn't see how God could do what he said he would do, how he could fulfill what he said he would fulfill. Avraham's not perfect. He's made mistakes. But Avraham is still the chosen one. It was It's Avimelech now and his nation who is dependent upon Avraham a man who hadn't quite acted righteously in this situation, who hadn't told the whole truth, who had presented it something in a way that wasn't quite right. Was it, was it technically true? Yes. They were brother and sister, at least half brother and sister. Was it true in word? Yes. Was it true in spirit? No, because they were married, man and wife. And that's the problem, because Abraham... Sticking to the word and the literal and the technical caused someone else to fail. It was Abraham's own unrighteous act that brought all of this about in the first place. We find out later in the chapter that a curse had come upon Avimelech, and not just upon him, but upon his entire household because of what Abraham did. All because Abraham hadn't told the whole truth. Why was it that Abraham didn't tell the full truth? Because he didn't believe that Philistia, Gerar, the pagans, that they could be decent people without the fear of God. 
Avraham assumed the worst of everyone that didn't worship Hashem. We find out in verse 13 that this was an arrangement that Avraham had made with Sarai from the very beginning. Avraham had grown up around pagans. He knew the way of pagans, and he made an assumption that all pagans were going to act the same way. Avraham's prejudice towards and his assumption about pagans caused innocent people to be cursed by God. Let that sink in for a moment. Avraham's prejudice, his assumptions, his presumptions caused a nation to sin. That's something that must be addressed in the Torah movement. It is all too common to see people attacking others simply because they don't know God the same way I do. Even worse, they don't know the God of Israel at all. We've taken it upon ourselves to be the judge of nations, to cast condemnations on anyone outside of our little clique. But we have an example. Yeshua, our Savior, our Messiah. What was his example? Romans 5.8, But God proves his own love for us that while we were still sinners, Messiah died for us. The example is to love the enemies of God, to give yourself for his enemies, for those who don't know him. What is prejudice? We, this is a word that's thrown around all over our society, but do we truly know what prejudice is? Prejudice is a bad way of thinking about someone that you don't know. It's judging a person before you know them. Usually, this is based upon something that you see in the person, where they live, what clothes they wear, what car they drive, what they look like, what God they worship, how they worship God, what name they call him, or any other reason can be used as a reason to prejudge another person. And in so doing, you judge their relationship with God. It's assuming that someone is not worth loving because of how they're different from me. Abraham saw that the Philistines worshipped another god, and so he assumed the worst of them. This assumption caused dire circumstances for the recipient of the judgment. This is something that we have to consider in all of our own lives, something that we should go to the Father with. We need to ask some questions. Have I ever judged someone unfairly? And because of my prejudice caused another to sin? Scripture has some very serious things to say about those who cause others to stumble. In Matthew 18, 7-9, it says, Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks! For it is necessary that stumbling blocks come, but woe to the man by whom the stumbling block comes! And if your hand or your foot cause you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. It is better for you to enter into life lame or crippled rather than having two hands or two feet and be thrown into everlasting fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it away from you. It is better that you enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes be thrown into the fire of Gehinnom. In Mark 9.42 it says, Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to stumble... It is better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. What is Yeshua speaking of here? Is he speaking of self-mutilation? Is that what he's getting at? 
if you sin, just cut off the part of you that sins? No, he, he's, he's doing something that's very common in the early first century. And if you read through rabbinic literature, you'll see that this was just a way that the Jewish people thought at the time. They use hyperbole, overly use hyperbole, to drive home the seriousness of their point. Stumbling blocks are something we need to avoid, and something that we need to avoid being. As the body of Messiah, is he not saying that if the body of Messiah is having a problem, and part of the body is causing the nations to stumble, do we separate from them? Should we separate from them? Woe to the world because of stumbling blocks. Woe to the man by whom a stumbling block comes. If we read Revelation 18.21, we read that the mighty angel picked up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, With such a rush the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found any more at all. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to stumble, it were better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. It would be better for him to be judged as Babylon than to cause another to stumble. What is it that Abraham became in this chapter? He became a stumbling block to an unbeliever. Why did he become a stumbling block to the unbeliever? Because he naturally assumed the worst of him. And in so doing, he caused the worst to occur to another. Abraham had to get over his prejudice, and he had to intercede before God on behalf of the one whom he had harmed. So what does it mean to intercede? This is something that I've talked about in the last few weeks, but it's not really something that I've defined. So what does it mean to intercede? Intercession means to ask someone to do something for someone else. It's like getting in trouble in school with a teacher or principal, and your parents come in and they talk to the teacher about you. In that situation, your parents come in and they act as your intercessor for you with the teacher. An intercessor is the person who does the asking between two parties that have a problem. In this story, Abraham had to ask God to forgive Abimelech for taking Sarah from him. But it was Avraham that caused the curse in the first place. And yet he had to be the intercessor. He had to be the one to lift the curse. The natural questions begin to kick in. Why was Avraham not cursed? He's the one who initiated the sin. Why was Avimelech's repentance not enough to end the curse? Why is it that God will answer Avraham's plea on behalf of Avimelech and not simply forgive Avimelech. He had integrity. He was righteous. So many things in this chapter seem contrary to what we think should happen. But I think that there's something going on just beneath the surface, something that we need to recognize. And once we recognize that, all of the surface questions and tension disappears. So let's ask some questions. Who was Avimelech? Well, Avimelech was the king in Gerar, the leader of a nation in the land of Canaan. Most importantly, Avimelech was not in covenant with the Most High God. Was he righteous? 
He certainly thought so. Did he have integrity? Yes. Yes, he did. He sought to do what was right in this situation. He sought to do what was right in his relationship with Abraham. We can look back to Ketaleo Mare and his righteousness, right? The righteous king. But was he righteous? No. He did all the right things, but he didn't have covenant. He sinned without knowing, and the sin brings on a curse. Fixing that sin now requires an intercessor before God. So let's flip the question around. Who is Abraham? Well, Abraham was a chosen one from the nations, right? Abraham was in covenant with God. Abraham was a prophet, and he had a relationship with God. And this kind of gives us a role of Yeshua's role before the nations. In Romans 8.34, Who is he who is condemning? It's Messiah who died, and furthermore is also raised up, who is at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who is condemning? Messiah. Who is making intercession? Messiah. Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is also to save completely those who draw near to God through him, ever living to make intercession for them. Those who draw near to God through him. Yeshua still has to make intercession for them. Avimelech wanted to draw close to God. He wanted to do the right thing. He still needed an intercessor. He couldn't do it on his own. He couldn't enter into a covenant with his own choice. Avraham was the righteous one before God, even if in the moment he wasn't acting righteously. It was his job to act as an intercessor, not just for the righteous in places that he knew, such as Sodom. He knew people in Sodom. He interceded for Sodom because of the people he knew there. But now he has to intercede for his enemies for the man who had harmed him by taking his wife into his home. Despite Abraham's role as intercessor and prophet, he was still operating in the flesh this time. And this is such a foundational principle that it seems obvious when stated, but we get a very real example of it in this chapter. The righteousness of those outside of covenant with God is not enough to reverse the curse of sin. We saw it with Kedileomer. We see it here with Avimelech. God would not, he could not, reverse the curse of Avimelech based on Avimelech's own righteousness. His integrity and his intentions, they don't matter. What matters? What matters is covenant. What matters is relationship. Avraham had these things. Avimelech did not. But if Abraham, well, he didn't really lie, right? He allowed a half-truth to pass as truth. And Romans 8.1 says, There is then now no condemnation for those who are in Messiah Yeshua, those who are in covenant with God, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Abraham was in covenant, and because of that, he has no condemnation, even when he fails. But that seems unfair. How could a man with integrity be accursed? And the man who told the white lie, get away, not only scot-free, but enriched. Our flesh and our logic rebels at this idea when we look at the surface. But when we look at the Spirit and we consider the relationship and the covenant that was working here, 
we can't deny that God's will was done. Because this wasn't done based on a guilt-innocence understanding of the world. God's will was accomplished according to an honor-shame understanding. And this is one of the reasons it's so vital that we grasp the honor-shame dynamic. Because our whole standing before God is based on if we are in covenant or not. It's based on standing of relationship with Him. Our standing before Him is not a moral decision. I said it last week and I'll repeat it this week. Sin is not moral failure. Sin is a failure of relationship with God. It's a failure of keeping the covenant. Sin is bringing dishonor upon God. It's acting shamefully while representing Him to the world. If we look at the Ten Commandments, what is the third command of the Ten Commandments? Do not bring God's name to nothing. We usually hear it, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's how it's written. But if we look at the Hebrew and understand what it's getting at, it's actually it's just talking about don't bring God's name to nothing. Now, when he's talking here, is he's not speaking of his moniker, the words or the syllables that identify him and differentiates him from another God or another individual. That's not what name means in the Hebrew. It's not only what name means. It does bear that. But the name in the Hebrew is a person's integrity, a person's character. It's their reputation. It's their honor. It's their past. It's their history. It's all that a person is. It's, it's what people look at when they think of a person. Think of someone in your life. Let's just think of uh, Barack Obama. Okay? When you think of that name, something pops into your head. Right? You think of not just the man, the president. You think of the character of the president. You think of his honor. You think of his reputation. You think of all of the pieces of him that we know of him, and he becomes a living person based on all of those things. When you take God's name in vain, or when you bring God's name to nothing, what you're doing is you're bringing shame upon him. You're acting shamefully and smearing his reputation and his character by saying that you represent him and then acting in a way that's shameful, acting in a way that's, in, that's without integrity, acting in a way that's contrary to him. Simply saying a phrase is not taking God's name in vain. Saying that I am a Christian, I am a believer in God, and then acting without justice, mercy, compassion, patience, that is taking God's name in vain. Because God's name is his reputation. The fact is, we all bear God's image. Every single one of us, every person that's alive, and every single one of us has brought shame, not just upon ourselves, but upon the God who's created us. We have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. We have fallen short of living up to our responsibility to live in His image. 
This story epitomizes the truth that God doesn't operate on a purely guilt-innocent standard. If that were the case, Avimelech could have simply made things right. He had, after all, committed no moral fault. He didn't sleep with Sarah. No one was harmed. The only thing that was hurt was Abraham's reputation, Abraham's honor as the representative of the living God. And Abraham, with that moniker, with that role as representing God, if shame came upon Abraham, shame came upon God. Avimelech understood honor and shame, and that is why he showers Abraham with gifts. He has besmirched Abraham's honor. It's now incumbent upon him to return Abraham's honor. As I've studied more and more the concept of honor and shame in Scripture, the entirety of Scripture is based on this paradigm. Let's look at it from another way. Let's look at it from the scope of life and death. Where are we in the story of the promise being fulfilled in Abraham's life? We are within one year of Isaac being born. One year of this impossible dream coming true. And where is Sarah right now? She's in the house of another man. If this other man takes Sarah into his bed, what happens to Isaac? Is he the product of Abraham? Is he the product of a blessing from God? No. Now there's questions. Now everybody's going to wonder, who is the father? Is it possible that Avimelech's now the father? That Avimelech's God blessed Sarah and made her fruitful? That Avimelech's God has more power? Why is it so important right here that Avimelech did not sleep with Sarah? Is it because it would have been adultery? Not so much. It's to protect God's honor, to protect Abraham's honor, and to keep that in place. It's the path of life that's being created through the family of Abraham. Her being taken into Avimelech's house is endangering that path of life from coming to fruition. There's so much going on here, so much that we can learn. And I think one of the things that we can learn, one of the things that's really important, is we can look at Abraham in this story and we can compare him to Yeshua and we can see a really huge difference. What is it that Yeshua did that was different than Avraham? Well, Yeshua took those with no honor, and he bestowed honor upon them. Yeshua ate with prostitutes and tax collectors. He touched the untouchable. He treated every single person as valuable. How did the religious that were around Yeshua act? They acted with prejudice. They heaped shame upon the shameful. They used the shameful in order to gain honor for themselves. And they looked upon themselves as better than those around them. Abraham is acting religious in this chapter. He's doing everything that the Pharisees did. Judging everybody else without full knowledge, prejudice. Putting shame upon somebody that's not in covenant, increasing their shame. He's using something shameful in order to gain honor for himself. Not just honor. In, in fact, in this case, Abraham is allowing something shameful to occur for the mere fact of saving his own life. 
but he's looking at himself as better than the nations. I didn't think that the nations would be right or just or honorable in this. This chapter not only reveals the righteousness of the nations and demonstrates how God interacts in regards to the nations, even the righteous one, but this chapter reveals the failures of the righteous when they interact with the nations. And this is the way that Israel has acted for nearly millennia. It's the way that Yeshua criticized the religious for. This is the way that many of us still operate in regards to the people that we consider pagan. If we read Acts 10, this is the lesson that Peter had to learn. Now, Acts 10 is one of those chapters that is so widely misunderstood by so many people because they make it about food. But if we read Peter's own words, we find out his vision had nothing to do with food, right? Peter was standing on the rooftop of Simon the Tanner's house. As he's up there, he gets hungry. As he's hungry, he has a vision of, un- of all sorts of animals, clean and unclean, descending on a sheet, and he's told, take and eat. Now, in the ancient Near East perspective, especially in the Judaism of the first century, if a clean animal was raised in the same pen or came in contact with unclean animals, it made them common, and common food was not to be eaten. They weren't necessarily unclean, but they became common. They, you just you separate the two. Clean animals stay only with clean animals. Unclean animals stay only with unclean animals. And this had infected the entire religious structure where Jews only ate with Jews. Eating with a Gentile was forbidden, according to Halakha, according to the, the Jewish way of walking, according to the traditions that had been handed down. When God brings this vision down and he says, take and eat, he's not being told to eat whatever he wants. And we know this because we keep reading. We don't just take the verse out of context. We don't just do some soundbite theology. And in Acts 10, verse 28, he said to them, You know that a Jewish man is not allowed to associate with or to go to one of another race. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. He's not talking about animals being common or unclean. The animals are a metaphor for men. The vision was not about food. This vision was about the sin of Abraham here in Genesis 20. No man, even the king of the Philistines, should be considered completely lost and without hope. Abraham made a judgment. He prejudged the situation. He prejudged the people he was coming into contact with. And he assumed the absolute worst about them, the same way that the Jews did in the first century. But there's one more difference in this chapter between Yeshua and Abraham. In the New Testament, we, the ecclesia, the congregation of Messiah, the church, it's presented in a metaphorical light in in many ways in relationship to Messiah. And not just relationship to Messiah, but, but to God. We read this in Isaiah 54, 5. For your maker is your husband, Hashem of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. He is called the God of all the earth. 
Ezekiel 16.8 says, And again I passed you by and looked upon you and saw that your time was a time of carnal love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness, and I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, declares the Master Hashem. And 2 Corinthians 11.2 says, For I am jealous for you with a jealousy according to God, for I gave you in marriage to one husband to present you as an innocent maiden to Messiah. In Ephesians 5 said that in order to present to himself a splendid assembly, not having spot or wrinkle or any of this sort, but that it might be holy and blameless. We, the congregation, the ecclesia, the kahal, the church, were called the bride of Messiah, and we are to be presented to him upon his return. We're not married to Messiah yet, we're betrothed. When he returns, we will become his bride. It's as simple as that. And here is where we see the connection between Abraham in this chapter and our Savior. Because Abraham, he gave up his wife to pagans in order to save his own life. But in Ephesians 5.25, we read, Husbands, love your wives as Messiah also did love the assembly. And he gave himself for it. Messiah gave up his life for the sake of his bride. This chapter really does not show Avraham in a very good light at all. Avraham seems to do all of the wrong things in this situation. But how does that affect his relationship with God? Not at all. It's as if God doesn't see his faults and failures. In fact, not only does God not see his failures, God protects him and those around him from his failures. How awesome is our God that he extends his honor to us even when we don't deserve it. How awesome is our God that he would come to earth and give his own human life in order to save his bride. In a twist of human logic, our master gave up his life and allowed the pagans to have his bride. All is a part of a longer game to reclaim her in the end from their hand. What an amazing God we serve. This chapter brings up so many different things, and it's quite complicated in its implications. But those implications are also so very profound. We must be ever conscious of how our prejudices can affect others, and how we can truly hurt others by simply not telling the whole truth. We can bring curses on others, but we can become a stumbling block. Woe to the one who becomes a stumbling block. Abraham, operating in his preconceptions, nearly ruined an entire nation. His prejudices caused nothing but heartache and curses. We ourselves, as the seed of Abraham, we must examine ourselves for prejudice because such things can curse the world, and that is the exact opposite of the blessing that God has charged his people with. We we are called to bless the world and not bring curses upon it. If we approach the world in prejudice, we will not fulfill God's calling. The righteousness of the nations in the face of a righteous God, it's really not all that great. We saw that in Ketileomir. We see that here in Avimelech. A man in covenant, acting stupidly, even shamefully and sinfully, is greater in God's sight than a nation acting in integrity and yet out of covenant. Think about that for a second. A man in covenant 
and acting stupidly or even shamefully is greater in God's sight than an entire nation that is acting in integrity but is out of covenant. As I sat and I considered that, I found it truly profound because God treats his covenant partners as truly special. And this, this is something that we should cherish and we should rejoice in. To be counted as one of his covenant partners is better than anything else in the world. Finally, we must never think that our life is worth more than our covenant. Yeshua revealed this to us. He showed us just how we are to act when we are confronted with the temptation to give up on our covenant partner, whether that be our spouse or our Messiah. Give up your life first before you even think of giving up your covenant. Revelation 12:11 says this, And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their witness, and they did not love their lives to the death. They overcame because of the blood of the Lamb. They're in covenant. And they did not love their lives to death. That covenant meant more to them than life. We can't make the same mistake that Abraham made. We can't love our life so much that we would abandon our covenant partners. That we would accept shame and bring shame upon others. That we would curse the world in order to save ourselves. Such a difficult calling. Once again, walking in covenant isn't the easy path. It's the difficult. It's the narrow. It's hard. But it's the path we're called to live on. The path we're called to work in. Oh, Father God, please, just give us the wisdom to recognize these situations when we come upon them. Give us the ability to discern properly and not with prejudice. Give us your spirit so that we might bless the world and not bring curses upon it. And as we go forward and as we continue through our lives in the upcoming weeks, as always, Deresh Kai. Seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.